You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's time for The Naked Scientist. And we take all of your science-related questions. Dr. Chris Smith is with us. 11 Your SMS is 31702. Your tweets at RileBukhileM at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. Any of the questions that you may have for him, bring them through. Dr. Chris Smith, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. I am absolutely fantastic. And I, I, I was thinking before, you know, we jumped into into uh, taking all of the callers and the listeners' questions to ask you, we were talking about slaughtering earlier on on the show and obviously the conversation of pain and suffering uh, we we discussed it quite at length and we're talking about culture and, and all of these things where some people say in their culture the animal must scream for us to to recognize for the that's the sign that the ancestors say uh, we, we receive the offering um, others obviously say we don't want to hear animals screaming so from a biological or scientific perspective is it possible to slaughter an animal or take its life without it suffering or feeling pain? Because in my mind, even a stun gun of sorts causes discomfort. Well, if you look at the brain of many animals, then they are extremely similar to the brain of a human. You Mm. can find similar structures and a similar wiring in a small animal, a bigger animal, and a human. They all match up. They all do the same sorts of jobs. And so it's reasonable to deduce that if a human subject to that situation could feel pain, Mm. and we're talking about physical pain, we're not talking about psychological pain, knowing that something's going to happen to you or knowing that, you know, your life's gone up in smoke because you you gambled your house away or something, that's very different than knowing that someone's about to thump you very hard. Yes. That that sort of psychological pain will put to one side because that may be a uniquely human trait, the Mm. ability to have insight into the future. But physical pain animals certainly show very similar neurological reactions they show very similar behavioral patterns in response to those neurological signals and it's therefore reasonable to deduce that well if they do that and under those circumstances we would do the same thing then we would be in pain so they probably feel pain too Mm. and certainly when my wife stood on the dog's tail the other day, <laughs> the noise, you, you, not from her, from the dog, yes. you'd think that, um, that you know, the dog was having its tail amputated. Well, it, it probably felt the dog it did. It certainly sounded like it was in significant discomfort. Yes. So my view is that animals, even simple animals, because they have very similar nerve pathways, are going to feel pain. Yes. Therefore, since we can, to answer your question, uh, dispatch a human off to the operating theatre or in such a way that they don't come back, mm. in various sort of comfortable ways we should do our utmost to make the same the case for animals and i know i put psychological pain to one side but this matters too because animals are not daft and they can sense impending danger that's what's Mm. kept them alive on earth for millions of years and if you queue them all up in a big sequence of animals in a queue going into a slaughterhouse they know they can get insights they are picking up on various signals the pheromones the smells they can tell when things are going wrong up ahead in the production line. We need to make sure that we take all that into account because at the end of the day, we share the planet with animals. Mm. We're here because of them. And fine, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian or anything. I, I eat meat like the next person, but I do expect people to treat animals with respect. Mm. And, and I do, when, I, when I'm eating my steak, I do think, well, something had to die for me to enjoy this steak. So I make sure, A, I, I finish it, and B, 
that uh, that I do buy from reputable suppliers that do actually have animal welfare at heart. Mm. All right, I got you completely. Oh, there's a very tough question here that's coming through from Rian in Pretoria. Ooh, Rian says, Hi, Rile Please ask Dr. Smith how I can speak or communicate with my ancestors. Well, it, it depends whether or not you believe that you can, because yes. not everyone believes that you can have a connection to dead people. But you've certainly got a psychological one. And even though you may have lost a person's physical presence in your life and mm. on Earth, you may retain a psychological connection with them with the memory that you preserve of them. And many people say to me when they've lost someone, they still have conversations with them because they ask themselves, well, if I was talking to you, what would you say? And they recreate that person. You can hear the voice of that person in your head and you can really bat ideas back and forth between that virtual person in your mind's eye and yourself. So I would say that's a kind of connection with your ancestors. I often find myself asking, what would you do of people that I no longer have to ask under these sorts of circumstances? How would you react? What would mm. be your reaction? And sometimes that can be incredibly comforting because you know that they would almost certainly, in the same way that they'd have picked you up when you fell over when you were little and patted yes. you and said, it's all, it's all good. You can do that psychologically and it does help you to say, look, I've come through worse than this. I'll be okay. And it, it does help. So how does it work then, if I may ask? You know that those machines they use on those um ghost and spirit searching shows where they go into like a so-called haunted house and they use this machine that supposedly measures energies how does that work well it's all hocus pocus designed to make good telly to be perfectly frank because (laughs) no one i mean you could say let's put ghost to one side for a minute and let's talk about a topic that was hot last week in the news friend of mine came over from australia not just to see me but to to go and see some people and he just published a really good paper in a really good journal about the search for dark matter this is the missing matter in the universe we know that what's out there in the universe there's five times more mass out there than we can see in the physical stuff so there's a huge unknown out there and people don't know how to detect it because it doesn't interact with things and if you've got something that you can't prod it and get a reaction it's very hard to know how to test it so if you can't test it you don't know if your machine's broken or if you're really just excluding what it isn't and so he's built this machine that enables them to test a, a range of different possible hypotheses for what dark matter is. And, and they've ruled out a whole heap of them, which is what his paper was about. But since we don't know what ghosts are, or even if they exist, in the same way as we don't know if some of our hypotheses for what dark matter is, is something that doesn't exist, then we don't know how to detect it. So anyone that tells you, I've got a detector for this, they're talking rubbish because yeah. you can't detect something where you don't know what it is. And so Mm. they've got no proof that ghosts exist, so they can't prove that their detector detects a ghost. Therefore, it's just good telly and good for ratings. It's not good for science. I got you completely. Here's a voice note. Hello, Lebukhile. Hi, uh, Dr. Chris. Yes, please. Um, I have a question. Um, How does alcohol affect us differently? Like uh, affecting different people differently. For instance, uh, some when they drink, they become violent. Some want to sleep. Some they just pee on themselves, and some start speaking English. What is it that alcohol does to our brain? Thank you. It's Alex from Pretoria. Thank you so much, Alex in Pretoria. Hi, Alex. The answer is that alcohol is a nervous system depressant. What that means in plain English is when the alcohol gets into your brain 
it strongly activates the inhibitory circuits in your brain that damp down nerve activity. So as a result of that, you do feel sleepy, you do find your reactions slow down, and that's why people have more accidents, and they also tend to be dangerous behind the wheel if they've been drinking, and that's why you mustn't do that. And the reason it has different effects on different people is our brains are all wired slightly differently. So if you activate the inhibitory systems in your brain, you might be inhibiting bits of your brain that would normally keep a lid on your behavior. And if you disinhibit something, you tend to make it happen. So as a result of that, if you've normally got a tight lid kept on a bad aspect of your behavior, which for social reasons you keep firmly under control, if you disinhibit that, then it manifests itself in ways that you might want, not want to happen when you're not drunk. Different people, therefore, because they have brains wired slightly differently and have different relative uh, disinhibited areas in the brain, will have different reactions to that. It's like any drug. Different people react differently to different drugs because we are all inherently different. Okay, and I think that's quite a fair one and, and, and that's why uh, it helps to know your own body. Some people will say one glass is enough or I can't touch tequila or whatever the case may be because I know what it does to me. A WhatsApp says, Good day, Dr. Chris. I would like to know if science has an explanation or distinction between dreams, visions and premonitions. If the brain is all working or there's something else that can be explained, thank you in advance. Well, when we talk about premonitions, people are saying they can in some way predict the future. Mm. I don't think that there's anything mysterious going on. What we have is a brain which has got hundreds of billions of nerve cells in it, which is extremely powerful as a machine at bringing together various bits of information and cues and making predictions about the world around us so that we can optimize what we do to give us the greatest chance of success tomorrow. So everyone is predicting the future in some ways. You know you've got to go to work tomorrow. You know you've got to get the shopping. And you're already, without even realizing it, planning your day around the fact that you're going to go to bed at a certain time because if you don't, you know you're going to feel awful at work tomorrow and you won't work as well and your boss won't be very happy. All those kinds of things. In some respects, are people having premonitions? They're drawing on their range of experiences. They're pulling together those different stimuli and cues and bits of information, and the brain is uniting them into a prediction as to what's going to happen next. And we do it all the time. So I think some people might be just very good at experiencing that. Some people also um, are going to fall for the uh, attaching significance to a coincidence trap. And this is the thing you have to be aware of. I think what I just said, it happens to everybody. But some people will say, well, you know what? I said this was going to happen, and the very next day it did. But what they don't remember is the 99 other times they said it was going to happen, and it didn't. And they attach enormous significance to the one time it did. So don't fall into that trap. Dreaming is probably quite different, and this is another very common physiological thing. We think that everybody and most animals dream. We know that, as I said at the beginning of the program, because most animals' brains are wired up the same way ours are, and we can follow the patterns of brain waves or brain activity when a person or an animal drops off to sleep, and we can show that they have exactly the same patterns in humans and animals. If you wake up a person and say, uh, what were you just experiencing, when they're showing brain activity that we call analogous to dreaming, they'll often say, I was having a dream, and they can recount it. When you're having a dream, different parts of the brain that do different jobs 
start to become spontaneously active and they replay memories, they also play out certain patterns of, of nerve activity which do get presented to your consciousness as real experiences. But it, we don't really understand why we dream, we don't know what the purpose of that is. It may have something to do with memory consolidation, it may have something to do with your brain making sense of all the, the gobbledygook that's come in during the day and throwing away the stuff it doesn't need so it preserves what it does. We know people's memories are stronger after they've slept and dreamt properly it's also key to good mental health. So as a result, feeling rested after a good night's sleep with, with dreaming seems to translate into a better uh, function the, the next day, and, and animals seem to be the same. So dreaming is a natural part of how your brain works, although we don't know how dreaming works, we don't know why it works, and we don't know why we bother doing it, but it does seem to be very important. All right, uh, let's go to some more voice notes. Afternoon, Kilevohile. Please ask the naked scientist if um, sleep paralysis is supposed to stop us from acting out our dreams. Why do males have uh, wet dreams, so to speak? Thank you, Chavo from the East End. Okay, I'm not sure if those were two questions or combined question. Yeah, I, I think they were. Um, <laughs> well, the the latter one first, wet dreams are also called nocturnal emissions. And this is because when you go to sleep, all, all aspects of your nervous system get activated, including the parts of the nervous system that cause arousal. And when you get aroused, once you're over a certain age, then the same processes that will also lead to ejaculation can kick in at night. And sometimes people do lose some liquid out of the penis for that reason. Now, when the, the other part of the question was sleep paralysis, and the answer is yes, everyone is paralyzed when they go to sleep. And the reason for this is exactly as he suggests, it stops you acting out your dreams. There is a region in the brain stem which connects your, your spinal cord where all the nerves that control your muscles are located and the top part of your brain where all the thoughts about controlling those muscles are created. And in the brain stem there is a gateway which when you go to sleep that gateway is slammed shut and when you slam it shut, it stops a lot of the signals that would normally go down your spinal cord and make you move. And this means that you can do reflex, reactive sort of gestures if you roll over, if you feel pressure on a certain part of your body to, to stop you getting pressure sores and so on, but you don't thrash around and throw yourself out of bed, which would be very harmful were that to happen. Sometimes when we wake up, though, the system forgets to open the gateway again quickly enough and there is a brief period but it feels like forever for the person who's experiencing it when they want to move they're conscious and awake and know that they can't move and they are terrified because they think they've had some kind of stroke or something and then the gateway opens the signals go back down the spinal cord and movement is restored and that's what sleep paralysis is it happens to a, a proportion of people it's certainly quite common but not everybody gets it Okay, and I think that makes uh, quite a, a lot of sense the way that you've explained it. Uh, let's listen to another voice note. Hi, Lebo and Dr. Chris. Uh, my name is Zach. I just want to find out um, what happens if uh, the big snakes, they swallow big animals, you know, like um, crocodiles and uh, the other big animals with horns. What happens? Uh, with the horns. Why is it that uh, the snakes, they don't get pricked? And uh, when after digestion, what happens to to the hoofs, the horns, and the bones? Thanks. Hmm. 
Yeah, he's absolutely right. There are some animals, that, some snakes, which are extremely large and are capable of taking big prey, and they can't chew their prey up, so they have to engulf it whole. And they have various clever strategies that enable them to dislocate their jaw, open their mouth very wide, and then slowly shuffle their body down over the prey so it goes down inside the animal. Part of the way in which this happens successfully is that snakes are a reasonable judge of what they can actually eat. They don't grab something and then have eyes bigger than their mouth and then think, I'm not going to get that in. They are pretty good at judging prey size, so they will take something they know that they can do this to. They have very distensible bodies, and as they engulf things, they're stretching, and they, their tissues are all stretching, in the same way that a, a woman's uterus and tummy stretches to accommodate a pregnancy. Mm. The inside of the snake can stretch and, and elastically distend in order to accommodate big prey. Digestive juices, muscle action, and pressure, therefore, are brought to bear against the thing, digesting it down to a fraction of what it was before, and a snake is just like we are, really. It's got a, a, a polite end and a rude end, and stuff goes in at the polite end and it comes out at the rude end. So it will work its way down the snake's digestive tract. It will extract as much possible nourishment as it can from those things, but there are indigestibles. There are proteins that are so tough, like hoofs, like horns, that the bones, in some cases, that can't be digested and crushed up, and they will be excreted. And you'll find the husk remains of whatever the snake has eaten passed out the back end a period of time later. The thing is, these animals are cold-blooded, so they have a relatively low metabolism. They don't have to feed very frequently, and so one big meal like that will keep them going for absolutely ages. So they'll take a big meal like that, then they'll go off and hide somewhere and spend a long time digesting it. Okay, that is a stellar question. Let's go to the lines. We've got Jacob in Highlands North. Hi, Jacob. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? Can you turn it off? Sorry. Uh, hi. Um... Yes. I want to know, is lucid dreaming a real thing and how does it work? Mm, good question, Jacob. How old are you, Jacob? I'm 17. Okay, what, what made you think about lucid dreaming? Uh, well, we were talking about sleep paralysis and I watched a video that said uh, often if you, have, if you try and use lucid dreams, it can cause sleep paralysis. Oh, okay. Interesting one. Doctor? Uh, Jacob, I haven't come across that link, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Um, the answer is that lucid dreaming is really daydreaming. It's where you are in a deep, restful state, and you are in some way, therefore, able to feel like you're asleep, and you're having dreams, but you're kind of guiding the direction of those dreams. In much the same way as if you just sat there and daydreamed, you'd be able to guide the direction of the dream. And it's quite nice in that respect, because you can have things happening that you wouldn't normally be able to do, see, or, or ha have happened to you, but you can do that quite safely from the comfort of your bed. But I, I don't think there's anything special about this. I think that it, it probably refers to some people who are in a sort of hinterland where they're almost asleep but not quite, and they're awake enough to direct the course of where they want their dreams to go. But not everyone can do that. Some people, the minute that the day dawns, they leap out of bed and they're up about and doing things. I'm one of them, um, probably because I have a craving for coffee that's getting me out of bed. <laughs> but others are much better at doing that kind of thing. Um, I've not met many of them, though. All right, thank you so, so much, uh, Doctor, helping us understand all the interesting science things that we get to be curious about. We're back with you next week. That's The Naked Scientist.